Spirit. Lord, help us to know our need. Even if that takes what happened to the Apostle Paul. That we would have to have some kind of affliction to make us feel our weakness so that we could resound with Him when He understood Your promise of grace, of sustaining grace, we could say, with Him. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God, grant that to your church today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. How wonderful of a weekend we've had together as a church. So many delightful things going on with our great men's ministry conference. We enjoyed that time together and really learned and grew and were challenged and encouraged. Ladies' time together on Friday night as well. And then the church gathered together and went to the Life March. Thank you so many of you for kind of braving that cold and windy weather and even a little bit of sprinkles on us and we were able to go out and just affirm how much we love image bearers, those made in the image of God, human beings, life in the womb, life outside of the womb. What a, an opportunity for us to make a clear statement of love for humanity. Thank you for your participation in that. And thank you also for the incredible job you did in helping with the soccer evaluations. A lot went on Friday night, a lot on Saturday with all that going on, and you did it excellently. So I want to thank you. A lot of times we're trying to rally you. We're trying to encourage you and get you out there. And then, bam, you hit it and you do a great job. And we forget to come behind it and say, good job. So thank you. I really appreciate it. I want to mention two things that are coming up that I want you to go ahead and calendar. They're important in the life of the church. Let me go. That's great, Robin. Perfect. Next Sunday night, not tonight, we are having regular services tonight. Some of our life groups are actually meeting in homes because they're going to do their study together and watch the Super Bowl together. But we're having all the regular things going on on the campus tonight. I'll be teaching on the book of Jeremiah here um, in the sanctuary at 5 p.m. And then our life groups will be meeting, our youth, our uh, children, all those ministries will still be happening. Um, But uh, the following Sunday night... We're having a great night together called The Mission, Missions, and Missionaries, where we have five of our folks who've gone out during the Christmas break and ministered in three different places, China, Zimbabwe, and in Ecuador. They're going to be sharing with us as a congregation, so we'll all be gathering together that night here in the sanctuary, and I want you to come out, set aside that time at 5 p.m. From 5 to 5.45, you can look at the schedule on the next slide. Uh, we're going to have the missionary stories and some information from them. From 5.45 to 6, some Q&A with them about what they were doing. And then from 6 until a little after 6.30, we're going to have a presentation about the ministry in Ecuador this year. On the next slide, you can see July 6th through the 21st. Cost is approximately $2,400. That's for two weeks. That includes everything necessary from when you leave 
your home until you return. That's including the insurance that you'll need. Uh, it's, it's really a great opportunity. We're going to share about it, show you some pictures, talk about what we'll be trying to accomplish this year while we're in Ecuador. So join us next Sunday night for that starting at 5 p.m. Good job. We have been studying our relationship with money and possessions. The first Sunday when we launched into this, we talked about the kind of problem that we have with money and possessions. Jesus telling us that the problem was so serious that it could literally blind us. And we acknowledged that the problem is so serious that Jesus talked more about money and possessions and the right relationship with them and use of them than he did about heaven and hell combined. In fact, some of his heaven and hell stories were also stories about money and possessions and how the blindness and how the the lure of Temporal treasures can have such an impact on our destiny, our eternal destiny. And then the following week, we talked about God's power of grace to free us from our problem with money and possessions. And we saw how grace liberates us to no longer be slaves to material things. Then the following Sunday, we studied together how in our giving, God is working on a particular produce, like the produce department in the grocery store, the produce in our lives. And we saw how God is sowing in our lives through our right relationship with our money and possessions and our right kind of giving. He's actually sowing the seeds of righteousness which flourish in our lives, and God is interested in growing righteousness in us. And then the following week, we saw that giving, right giving of our material possessions and right use of those things is actually proof. Proof to God, proof in our hearts, and proof to our neighbors and fellow man that God's love, God's grace really does abide in us. It's tangible Evidence that people experience through our generosity that we really are Christians. And that there's a ton of Bible that backs that up. And this week, what we're going to talk about is the process of giving and what that looks like. First, looking at um, about 11 characteristics of giving and what it looks like in our heart when we're giving rightly. And then we're going to walk through sort of an outline of some general principles to set us up to be healthy givers. So let's jump into the Lord's Word. We're starting back in Genesis. We're going to take a tour of the Bible today, so kind of get your Bible ready. And we're going to start motoring through, beginning in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. It's very interesting that one of the first stories we have in the Bible after the fall is a story about giving about a relationship with God in which something is given to or towards him, and he either says, good job, well done, or he says, "Mm, no, that's not right. And that's found in Genesis chapter 4. It's right there in that wonderful passage that kind of kicks off after 
the fall. The wonder is that God was giving children, but the not-so-wonder is what the children did in relation to God. We start in verse 3 of chapter 4. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard to Abel, excuse me, for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. Now, something about God's meaningfulness in this work. So the first characteristic is that offerings, givings, gifts toward God should be meaningful. Something tied to Abel and his heart and his giving that was meaningful to him and to God. Something was absent in the giving of Cain and his gift to God. And so God regards the man and his offering Abel, they go together. It's a weird thing. That because there is a meaningfulness to his offering, that the tie together of God regarding Abel and his offering, God not regarding Cain and his offering. So there's some kind of connection between us and the meaning behind our giving. Always, God seems to teach in the Bible that the things we do with Him are a matter of our hearts. Theologians have wrestled for a long time trying to explain exactly what God rejected. The point is that some kind of meaning that God had taught, had expected, was supposed to be present in what both men did. In one man's life, that meaning and understanding of his relationship with God, his relationship with his stuff, was understood and properly carried out. The other guy, it wasn't. So much so that the Lord informs him that he's not happy. And it makes him angry. How angry? So angry that he kills his brother. If you don't think the topic of giving is sensitive, look here. If you feel yourself getting mad when people talk about money and giving and sharing before God, I want you to know that somebody's been mad about it a long time ago. And so somehow there is a meaning here that God has given in the process of relating our offerings, our giving to Him, that somehow rises above the actual element itself and is tied to our hearts. And so God disregards Cain and his offering, regards Abel and his offering And so there has to be a sense in which our giving is meaningful. Number two, worshipful. In Genesis 8.20 and in Genesis 14.20, we have two stories of offerings. So we're early in Genesis and we got all these stories and examples of giving. People giving God word. 
One of those is the story in 820, right after the flood. Things are being set back to normal, and livestock are not in abundance. There's been a flood. Livestock have been wiped out. The only thing they have is what's come with them on the ark. So they're few in number, yet you see in Genesis 8.20 that Moses, excuse me, Noah, takes that offering of something rare and precious and gives it to the Lord. It's worshipful. It says, God, you are worthy for me to engage you in something so valuable as this. And so he gives, in Genesis 8.20, of these clean animals which are very few in number at this time. The animals are just now beginning to reproduce and reestablish on the earth. And yet he taps into that valuable resource and he gives. You get a similar picture when Abraham gives an offering in 1420 to Melchizedek. And that's a tithe. Long before the law is established, he gives a tithe. He gives 10% of what he's got. And he gives it Godward through Melchizedek, the priest of God. And he does it because he considers God someone worthy of worship so that he gives an abundance toward God. And so you have this story there in verse 20. And blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand of chapter 14 of Genesis. And he gave him a tenth of all. So there's this worshipful attitude that Abraham has toward God so that he gives Godward. Noah has that same worshipful attitude. He gives Godward. Both of these were both meaningful and worshipful. Letter C, our giving should be hopeful. Now, the reason I use the word hopeful is because a lot of times when we give sacrificially, we are missing, we are losing, we are denying something in our lives. We're going to talk about sacrificial giving in the next passage. But in giving, there is a sense in which we are called to be hopeful that what we are doing has some lasting purpose behind it. It's more than just the act itself. Now, in the story of Genesis 22, you have the story of Abraham offering up Isaac. And we know that God had promised through Isaac that Abraham would have grandchildren. So all of his promise of a continuation of his life and the fulfillment of all the things God has promised him is tied up in this one guy, Isaac. So he takes Isaac up the mountain and and he's going to sacrifice him because God told him to. But he gives hopefully, hoping that something beyond this act is going on. In the book of Hebrews, and I've noted that passage in your outline, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it says... He believed that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill the promise he had made. Now, I don't know how the writer of the Hebrews found that out about Abraham, but he tells us by the Holy Spirit that Abraham was hopeful that God was still going to do something through Isaac, even though he was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. When we give and we're truly, and the next point is sacrificial, you can go ahead and start writing that. When we're truly sacrificial, we have to give hopefully thinking, there's got to be something more to this than the act itself. 
There's got to be something beyond this that actually matters. Just not the fact that I'm giving something up. A lot of folks think that that's like the thing. They give and they kind of pat themselves on the back and say, well, you know, I, I gave up this and, boy, it, I really miss it, but maybe that's the thing it was all about, is me just missing it. And not knowing that when we give to God, nothing's lost in His economy. He is doing things far beyond our imagination. So hopeful giving is what Abraham did when he offered Isaac. Letter D, I said, sacrificial. David in Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, 24 says, I will never give anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. Think that through. I will never give anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. In other words, David's not just running this in his slush fund. You know, I got a little extra. I just kind of... Because Jesus talks about that in the next passage I mentioned there, Luke. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 is the story of the woman giving the offering, the widow, and, and she gives these two little copper coins, and Jesus points the disciples' attention and says she gave more than everybody else. They gave out of their excess, but she gave all she had to live on. The point that Jesus is making is there's two different kinds of giving. There's a kind of giving that really is sacrificial, and there's a kind that's really, I mean, it's just inconsequential. It doesn't matter that we don't have that money anymore. We don't miss it. It doesn't matter that we don't have that thing anymore. It was never anything to us and it's just gone. And he says that these other men, they gave it out of the overflow. She gave her all. There's this sense in which giving, biblical giving, has some flavor, some savor of sacrifice in it. Letter E, our giving should be thoughtful. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 13 is a story of how the Israelites had become so accustomed to the process of giving offerings that it had no meaning anymore. It had no sacrifice to it. It had no worshipfulness to it. It had no hopefulness to it. It just happened. They just stormed in, gave their offerings, stormed out, so much so that listen to God's description in Isaiah 1 of His frustration with the people and their process of giving offerings. Isaiah chapter 1, in fact, it's kind of offensive when we read it. He says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. Wait a minute. Isn't that the kind of stuff that they were giving back there? Isn't that the kind of stuff that that Abel was giving? The firstlings and the fatlings? Wasn't that what was going on there? And now you have the same thing. But it's worthless. Why? There was no thought to it. Listen to it. He says, I... Take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? What were they doing? They were thoughtlessly walking into worship. Thoughtlessly going through the motions. 
praying the prayers, singing the songs, thoughtlessly dropping in their offerings, dropping off their offerings, thoughtlessly exiting. And God pictures it with the word trample like a bunch of livestock rambling up into somewhere and then rambling back out with no regard for the holiness of God, the holiness of offerings, the holiness of worship. It was thoughtless. And so, God condemns it to the point that He says in verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. God says, if it's thoughtless, leave it at the house. Because He would rather engage our minds and hearts than our wallets. Now think about that. We don't often hear that kind of talk about giving. That God is much more interested in your mind and your heart than in your wallet. Because why? Because if your mind and heart are captive to God, then the wallet will thoughtfully follow it. But for the wallet to be thoughtlessly, for the purse to be thoughtlessly, for the check to be thoughtlessly given to God, it's an offense to Him. Letter F, it should be plentiful. In Luke 38, Jesus kind of talks about these two different ways of, of giving. One is is a plentiful way that's measured out in abundance. The other is a meager and, and sort of holding back way that's not measured out in abundance. And he says basically the way that you measure it out is how it's going to be measured back to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 5 calls it bountiful giving. So it's given in such a way that there's just a plentiful nature to it because God has been so good. Letter G, truthful. Our offerings should truthfully reflect who we are and what we are before God. We know the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 where Barnabas comes in and he gives this great big offering. He sells a bunch of property and he brings the proceeds of the sale of the property and he sits it at the feet of the apostles and he's got this name because of the kind of man that he is. He's generous and helpful. He's called Barnabas. That's not his original name. But he gets that name because he's an encourager. And nothing is as encouraging as generosity toward people who are in need. That is so encouraging. Being there for them in word and deed. And so Ananias and Sapphira said, hey, maybe we'll get some nicknames. Wonder what they'll call us. So they said, let's go sell some of our property, but we're really not in this very good. We'll hold part of it back and make it look like we're giving all of it. And we'll take the proceeds and we'll actually kind of live high on the hog back at the house. But we'll look good down at the church. So they brought their money in and they laid it down like Barnabas. And they're thinking, "Mm, what kind of popularity do you think we're going to get? What kind of name we're going to get? wonder what they'll call us, maybe the dynamic duo of giving. And they give in and they don't call them... Listen, they don't call them son and daughter of encouragement. Do you know what they call them? They call them the undertaker. Because they both die. Because God is being 
toyed with with money. They're flaunting, playing with offerings. God takes them seriously. And so He takes Ananias and Sapphira's life. There are only two instances that we know of in the New Testament where God takes the life of a confessing believer as a result of known sin. One of them is a general passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it says because some people have toyed with the Lord's Supper, a number of people are weak, sick, and sleep. He means they've died because they toyed with God in the Lord's Supper. This is the only other instance where God takes somebody's life because they're not serious. They're playing a game, toying with God with stuff. Letter H. Cheerful. Second Corinthians chapter 9 verses 7 and 8 said this is how giving ought to look. It ought to look cheer. We ought to be happy to give. God loves a cheerful giver. And we've kind of camped on that in the last few weeks and, and seen how that really matters. Why? Because it's flowing out of grace. It's flowing out of the gospel. It's flowing out of our salvation. Letter I, merciful. The whole story of the Good Samaritan is the story of a giver. He gives his time. He gives his love. He gives his touch to the man, wound, healing the wounds, bandaging him. He gives his money to the guy. He takes him, puts him on his donkey, carries him up to the inn, and pays for the guy's care, not just that day, but the coming days, and says, if there's any more of a bill for this guy, I'll come back and I'll pay the rest of it. There's a sense in which giving should be merciful. Listen, if we stand around and judge everybody that we're trying to give to and share with about whether or not they earn it or deserve it, we're totally missing how the gospel came to us. None of us were saved because we earned or deserved it. All of our giving is to reflect the mercy of God. So we give mercifully. First John chapter 3, verse 17 lets us know giving should be charitable. It ought to come out of love. Love should brew up such a love for those in need that we actually give it. It says, if you see a brother in need of daily clothing or food or shelter, and they come to you and they say, help me, and you say to them, oh, go be warmed and be filled, and you don't meet their daily needs, what kind of love is that? Real love is giving love. And so, it should be charitable. We should give in love. And finally... 1 Corinthians 16.2 talks about laying aside money weekly. It should be habitual. We should be habitual givers. It should be in the plan and program of our life, this is how I live. I am a habitual giver. I give regularly. So, let's break that down now and say, okay, what's that look like in real life? I had somebody, well, more than somebody, some folks contact me this week and say, how does this work out? How do you flesh this out? What's this look like at my house? How do I do this? How do I come about? In fact, one of the illustrations I used last week was my own guilt. And we talked about the difference between corn and cornbread. The corn for seed can be planted. The cornbread is eaten and consumed. And not being able to differentiate among what all God has given me, what is for me to consume and what is for me to plant and to to give, to, to give away, and I confessed you ate way too much cornbread, and, and, and so some other folks said, yeah, I got that same problem. How do we change that? So, here are, uh, a list of things 
that I hope will help us. So, number two, letter A. Steps toward grace-fueled giving. Develop a healthy devotional life in prayer and in the Word. This is how grace is going to fuel our giving. If the only reason we're giving is that I just have the habitual and Bart told me I should. That's not good. Our giving should rise out of the fact that I meet Jesus every day in His Word. I'm not talking about a devotional book. I'm talking about God's Word. Every one of us here need to be opening, not a devotional book, not open windows, great, I love open windows, excellent. We need to be opening the Bible every day and reading it with no commentary, with nobody's helps, with nothing down at the bottom, study Bible notes, just me and the Word and prayer every day. Good giving is going to grow out of a healthy devotional life because that's going to grow your love for the Lord. It's going to allow you to develop a heart that is like Jesus' heart. A giving, generous heart. So the key, the starting place for all of us is not all of the actual actions of giving. It's actually meeting with the Lord. It was modeled by the Lord Himself where He met with His Father. He rose early and spent time in prayer with the Father. So there's this call to develop a healthy devotional life in prayer and in the Word. This is where we start. I cannot tell you how important this is. This is better than Dave Ramsey. This is better than all of the different plans. This is better than all of the kind of giving strategy. This is you and the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit before the living God developing such a passion and love for Him that it is nothing to give up all that you are and have. I don't want to develop a plan where the church spends her time with a crowbar on the hinges of your purse, trying to lever it open so we could have something out of it. I don't want to spend our hours as a congregation trying to find this excellent, beautiful, creative, wonderful splash on the screen that would unhinge your wallet. I want you... To love Jesus. So that Jesus is every day unhinging your purse and your wallet. And you'll never feel that Bart was involved in that process. You'll never think of me when you think of the need to give. You'll never, it won't be about the church's plan. It'll be that you love Jesus. And you simply say, Everything I have, including myself, is yours. And that's it. That's where we have to get to be healthy. 
And that is not going to come from anything other than the primary place being time with the Lord in the Word every day. That leads us, number two. Live in community with believers who will challenge, model, and be challenged concerning grace-fueled use of money and possessions. You need to be in a small group. You need to be in a Sunday school class. You need to be in an accountability group. Every person here needs that. And we need to be honest and talk about things like money in those groups. And we need to be transparent. And we need to talk about our struggles. I can stand in front of you and I can tell you, I eat too much cornbread. But I need a small group that helps me be accountable to how I carry that out. You need that. We need it. We need to be a part of a community of believers who will challenge and model these things. You know, two of the greatest giving lessons I ever received... I'm going to tell you two of them. I've, I've got so many, but I'm going to tell you two of them. One of them, her name is Maribel. She's 97 years old now. 97. She was a member back at Parkway Baptist Church in Natchez. She lived across the street from me. She's a widow. She's on a very limited income. We were prepping for one of our trips to Ecuador and going through the process, and we didn't have quite the established giving base and generosity at that church that we enjoy here. So we had to do things like chicken sales. Listen, one time we made 2,000 chicken plates and sold them. you have any idea how labor-intensive that was? We could have led half the town to Jesus in the amount of time it took us just to cook that chicken, okay? It was labor-intensive. Well, Miss Maribel, knowing how passionate we were about getting the gospel to Ecuador, meets me in the middle of the street one day. I live here. She's catacorned to my house over here. She meets me in the middle of the street. Okay? When she's doing this, she's in her 80s. Okay? And her hands are trembling with excitement. Tears are flowing down her face. And she peels open an envelope. Inside that envelope are five $20 bills. It took her five months of having 20 extra dollars in her income to stack those five twenties. And with a trembling hand and tears in her eyes, she said, make sure somebody uses this to go to Ecuador. Listen, I, if you were, if I would have been handling Fort Knox's gold that day, I would not have been more careful with the money. Because I saw what labor of five months, of $20 a month, she came to me and gave me above her tithe. And she handed that. That galvanized in my heart the value of giving at every level in the church. It was precious. It touched me. She challenged me. I could never preach a sermon as powerful as that moment in the street. Never. 
No one who's ever preached about giving to me in all my days of being in a Christian church have ever challenged me the way that day in the street challenged me in giving. Powerful. Stays with me. Tell you about another lady. Miss Margie. I've told you the story of Miss Margie before. I got a phone call this week, which is what reminded me of her. She's dying. She's about 87. She's dying. I got to talk to her. She's got a some strange form of bone cancer. They can't treat her. She's in a good bit of pain. She already was having some troubles with memory and some early onset issues of dementia uh, a few years ago. And so I'm talking to her on the phone. She can barely hear. So here I am. Miss Margie! <laughs> oh, hon, is that you, Brother Bart? Country? Oh, she's country. Yes, ma'am. It's me. I love you. You're my favorite preacher. <laughs> I'm not going to be here long. Will you preach my funeral? Yes, ma'am. I promise. If there's any way to get there, I'll preach your funeral. How are the girls? They're, they're good. Will you preach my funeral? Memory's gone. Five times in about seven or eight minutes, she asked me to preach her funeral. While I've been a member of Kingsville... Miss Margie's been sending me letters, little cards. Chicken scratch on the front. She can't read and write well. Nestled in those cards, every time they come, are a few dollars. With a note. My husband, before he got saved, didn't believe in giving. And so he would let me take whatever money I could get from crafts or from selling vegetables and send to you. So here's three dollars, here's five dollars. Biggest one she ever sent me was thirteen dollars. And I would open that envelope and those dollars looked like they came from Ecuador. If you've ever seen Ecuador dollars, they look like five thousand people have handled them. I mean, they're just worn side out. And those little dollars would be in there. And I would take those and she would say, use them however you see fit. And I would make sure they get placed. That lesson on giving was far above anything you could hand me. Teach me, preach to me. Because it was sacrifice. She was truly impoverished and sending that to give to others. Now, let's see how this works out now. Here's five more things. I'm going to do them quickly and send us home. Letter C, make a budget. Every person here needs a budget. We need to be able to make a budget so we can actually see where the money's going. We need to know how much we spent at Starbucks this month. Or Wendy's. Or Los Portales. (laughs) Getting personal now. Yeah. (laughs) Or shopping. Or Amazon. We need a budget. See it, track it. At the end, uh, pull, pull up uh, real quick. Here's three three resources right now. That right down, they're actually on your bulletin. They're on the back side at the bottom. 
Crown.org, this is Larry Burkett's old ministry. Uh, fantastic place, $14.95 for lifetime access to online resources, a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you don't think it's worth it over those first 30 days, they give you your money back. It's really good budgeting material. Second, DaveRamsey.com. They have an app available called Every Dollar. It's free. Or if you want to connect it to your bank account, it's $99 a year. Uh, and that's a very secure system. And then Mint.com has an app available on the App Store called Mint. It's both in Google and in the um, apps, Apple App Store. Both of those bottom two are available on both of those. Crown doesn't have an app yet that I know of, but their online stuff is, of course, very good. You can use those. Make a budget. You need to know, first, you need to see where it's going. Second, you need to track where it's going. Third, you need to plan what to do with it. Everyone needs a budget to look at where their money is going. Listen, budgets are a moment of truth. Families come into me and they say, we got financial problems. My husband's spending this or my wife's spending this. And I get this conversation and I say, okay, go make a budget. Well, they don't want to do it because it's going to show what they're spending too. I mean, I'd like to point at my wife or point at my husband, but I don't want to tell what I'm doing. Budget that tracks every penny you spend. Because listen, you can hide it from everybody on earth, but God already sees your budget. And if He's looking at it, it's probably a good idea that you ought to see it too. Because He's watching every penny of everything you have where it goes. And He's aware. Very, very aware. So make a budget. Letter D. Get outside counsel and or counseling. Why did I say uh, counsel or counseling? Counsel is first. You just need a you need an outside opinion of how you're using your funds. Going through the total money makeover with Dave Ramsey is a good idea maybe for outside counsel. Meeting with somebody that's a financial planner, outside counsel. We have some folks in our church that are trained to do that. You let me know. I'll put you in touch with them. But sometimes we need counseling. Why? Counseling is different. Counseling is when we got a problem. We've got an addiction to spending or overspending and we really need somebody to talk about what's the problem here why am i acting this way what's going on spiritually all right letter e find a starting place for giving okay just find a place and start tithing to your local church is a good way to begin that's what i did i'm not leveraging tithing over you as a law that's just where i started i started with 10 percent when I didn't have very much. Sherry and I, when we first married, made a commitment to tithing. We've done so ever since. We've done it in fat times and in lean times. But for me, it was a good starting place. It's not a great end place. Because New Testament always calls us to something so much bigger than what the law calls us to. But it's a great starting place. The reason I say local church is not so you can line my pockets. I would do what I do if you didn't pay me. Now, you may choose that that's how you're going to work that. But I want to tell you something. Your local church is what is getting it done in your community. Amazing the ministries of this church. I could spend a month telling you all that's really happening behind the scenes in the giving of this church. It is phenomenal. Never seen anything like it. It is incredible. 
God is doing a work that I consider sheerly miraculous. And so your local church is the best bang for the buck in investment in kingdom giving. It's also the place that ministers to you. It's the place that loves you, counsels you, disciples you, all of those great things that you enjoy here. Letter F, simply seek to eliminate debt. Debt does two things that are not helpful to us. It eats away at our present and it sells part of our future. Now, there are some necessary debts, and even the best financial planners will say that there are necessary debts. Few of us could ever have bought a house with cash. I'm just pretty sure of that. And if we'd have burnt up all of our money just with rent, it's likely we would have never owned a home. So there are some kinds of debt that are not in and of themselves this evil mechanism. But the problem in America is not that kind of debt. It's overspending debt. It's a serious problem. And so, work to eliminate debt. Uh, Dave Ramsey's materials, Crown's materials, really uh, focus on getting out of debt. A lot of help there. And then finally, and I'll close with this, develop an awareness of local and global need so that you can prayerfully seek to meet those needs. Develop an awareness of local and global needs. So you can seek to meet those needs. I really want to encourage you in that. I had an illustration and left it sitting at the house, so here we go. I'm going to tell you about it anyway. But uh, this is how I'm going to close. I, I asked Sherry, I said, babe, what's the, uh, what's the smallest unit of measure that we have in our house? She said, I think it's an eighth of a teaspoon. So I went in her little drawer and I pulled that little eighth of a teaspoon measure out. And got it, and I mean, really is. It's a it's a little bitty guy, and there's just not much in there, okay. And then I went outside and I grabbed a shovel. All right, I grabbed a shovel that I have, and I was going to hold those two things up to you, and then I was going to reread the verse that you have in your outline, um, in Luke chapter six, verse thirty-eight. It's at the top of your outline. It was going to hold those two up. So imagine that Bart remembered to bring it. Okay, y'all with me? And he's got the little one-eighth of a teaspoon over here. He's got the shovel over here. And in light of that, listen to this verse. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if you're thinking about God growing your faithfulness, your righteousness your godliness, your Christ-likeness, and you want Him to grow that in measures back to you. Do you want Him apportioning that by the shovelful so that you can grow out of the immaturity of unchristlikeness to the maturity of Christ-likeness by leaps and bounds day after day as God shovels grace into our lives? Or do you want God to portion it out with a tiny teaspoon, one-eighth teaspoon, dipping it so that nobody ever really notices the change in your life? And between now and the time you go to stand before the Lord, you've really not moved much at all. The Bible says then you need to get your shovel out and be generous toward the needs of others. Because God is shoveling back the same way you're shoveling toward Him. That's what He's doing. You feel stagnant right now in your growth? 
Get serious about generosity. This goes into time. This goes into every aspect of who we are and what we own. It touches everything. But get into it for the right reason. Because you want God to grow your righteousness, your faithfulness, your Christ-likeness. That's His interest. His interest is making you like Jesus. That's His interest. Because in doing that, you will be happy. You will be holy. And God will be glorified. But a lot of that's not happening when we're portioning out with an eighth of a teaspoon meagerly of our time, of our resources, of our love, of our compassion, of our involvement, of our discipleship. I I want us to be a shovel-ready church where we're just so busy shoveling what we have and who we are into the kingdom that God builds something beyond our imagination. Would you bow your heads with me? For many of you, I just want to be real frank, your need is to come to Jesus Christ. Your need is not to open your wallet or your pocketbook or your bank account. It's not to write a check or to give a dollar. Your need is Jesus. You need us to know God's love, immeasurable grace, indescribable love for you. Because Jesus Christ came and He lived for you. He came and He died for you. He was raised from the dead on your behalf. He is reigning and interceding right now over the whole universe. And your great need is to come to Christ. To be saved. To know forgiveness. Washing. Cleansing. Favor. Love. Joy to know peace. But you must repent of your sins and turn and come to Jesus Christ, believing the good news of the gospel, of what He's done for you. So I'm inviting you. Come to Jesus. Would you today? Would you pray with me now and call upon Him to save you? Pray with me. God in heaven, my need is Jesus. I see it. I'm sinful. I can't fix it. But I've heard that Jesus can. That by dying on the cross for my sins and being raised from the dead, He can fix me. I believe. Fix me, O God. Save me, O God. Forgive me, O God. I trust Jesus. If you called upon Him just now in prayer, I want want to tell you a wonderful thing. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God takes seriously when we call upon Him in repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit and in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. He takes us into His family. He keeps us forever. Others, you're here. And when I mentioned the little one-eighth teaspoon, God pricked your heart. Because you feel like what you've been doing in ministry to the church or to the lost or to even your family, what you've been giving, you feel like you've been measuring it out with a little bitty teaspoon 
one eighth at a time. And in light of the lavish gift of Jesus Christ, you're, you're knowing God's touched your heart and you're saying, I need to do something. It'd be a great morning to come down and just get on your knees before the Lord and say, whatever is mine is yours. Do with me and my stuff what you will. I trust you.